happy uh, 4th of July week upcoming. Hope you've got some good plans in place to spend time with family or friends, and hope you get to enjoy uh, a little bit of good food, and hopefully a day off, a little bit of freedom from your work, and to take a few moments and to appreciate the great gift of freedom that we have in our country, uh, the gift that we have to worship together, the gift that we have to uh, be able to do that without fear, and even though maybe sometimes we, we start to think in some fearful ways about government and about regulations and things in our country, the truth is, is that we have an incredible amount of freedom in what we get to do and what we get to talk about and the way we get to worship uh, with very little infringement. It is a truly amazing thing, uh, a fairly unique thing in the history of the world. So uh, hopefully you'll get to enjoy some of that on Tuesday. Uh, before we start into the message today, I want to point out one opportunity for you uh, that's on the front of your bulletin today, and uh, I've got a copy right here of it. We had introduced in January a New Testament reading plan uh, that broke down into some bite-sized chunks, the whole New Testament, between January and the end of June. Well, hopefully you're awake and paying attention. Uh, June is over. Yeah, June is over. We're into July. 2017, so take careful note of that. Uh, and so here we are with another plan to share, and this is an Old Testament reading plan. Uh, so a couple of things about this. These are available in all three of the foyers. Uh, whichever one of these exits you go out, you'll find some of these on the welcome table in the foyers. And also, it's online. You can get a copy of this from our website and from the blog. Uh, but fair warning, uh, the Old Testament is about uh, twice as long as the New Testament. And so whenever you do that in six months, you're not talking one to two chapters a day. Uh, many times you're talking five, six, or seven chapters a day. That might sound like a lot. And so I wanted to give just one idea, one quick uh, little idea to help in case you really want to do this. You want to read through the Old Testament, uh, but you're concerned about the length uh, and the commitment of it. Uh, there is such an opportunity now with our audio Bibles that on your daily commute to work, you could simply queue up the passage of Scripture that is the daily reading uh, from Genesis or Exodus or whatever book we're in, and you could play that, probably have the whole passage done by the time you get to work. Uh, if you didn't finish it, I guarantee it'll be done by the time you get home from work on your commute, unless you know, you're one of those people who works from home. And then you're going to have to walk around the house about ten times, like the Battle of Jericho, with your earbuds in, and make a commute for yourself. Uh, to get the reading in. But if you do that, you'll hear the word. Um, it, it's a great way to encounter the scriptures is to hear the word. And then you might take the daily psalm and simply use that as your devotional time before you go to sleep or something. And, and before you know it, we'll be at Christmas and I'll be telling you, hey, congratulations, you read the whole Old Testament. So we hope that, that some of you will take advantage of that and that it's a blessing to you. Would you bow with me for a prayer? And then we'll enter into today's message. Lord, we thank you, uh, as we've just mentioned, we enjoy great freedom in our nation. We enjoy even greater freedom because we are in Christ. And because you have set us free from a couple of really contemptible situations that we'll talk about this morning. And God, as we encounter your word from Scripture, from this passage in Galatians today, we pray that you would do a few things for us. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the power of Scripture and to the words that you wrote through the Apostle Paul and the Spirit in him 
to the churches in Galatia and that today there would still be some significance for us, give us a blessing too, give us uh, a hope that comes from the scripture, give us some determination in our decision making and continue to guide us, God. Uh, we know that Christ is the great shepherd of his church and we know that your spirit is in us to uh, provoke us to doing what is right, uh, to convict us of what is wrong, and to lead us. And so we pray through Christ's leadership and through the Spirit in our hearts and through the words of Scripture that you will work powerfully uh, to lead us towards the freedom that you've called us to. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, and all who agree say, amen. Okay, so uh, we will be uh, starting a new series next week, a series about a spiritual gift called hospitality, and it's a gift that in particular I'm preaching to myself about because every time I test on spiritual gifts, it is my lowest and weakest. So starting next week, we're going to get into hospitality for a few weeks, but it seems appropriate today with the traveling that is going on and with the holiday week for us to just dive deeply for a few minutes uh, and, and really chew on a passage of Scripture, to enjoy a passage of Scripture that talks about freedom, something that's on all of our minds this week. And so today we're going to be in Galatians 5 for just these next few minutes, and we're going to try to experience a little bit of what Paul was dealing with, with the churches in Galatia, and what the answers were to some of the problems they were experiencing. And hopefully by the time you leave today, there will be some things in your own heart, some of those spiritual bondages that maybe have uh, have wrapped themselves around you that God is releasing by using his scripture to show us ways towards freedom. And as we get into it, I want you to think back to your childhood, uh, like I was thinking back to mine this week, and consider what kind of a home you came from, okay? I want you to think about what kind of a home did you come from? Was it a structured home in which the rules were very clear, uh, your parents uh, told you what was allowed and what was not allowed. You understood when you were to be home and when you were allowed to go. Uh, is that the kind of home you came from? Did you come from a kind of home in which there was very little expectation, uh, very poor communication of rules? You were often surprised whenever disciplinary action came down because you hadn't been told that there was an expectation. Maybe you were allowed to stay out even very young, you know, as long as you wanted. There was just very little as far as be at home for dinner, be at home for a curfew. Probably most of us came from one or the other. Maybe in all of our homes there's a little bit of overlap, but that experience might shape the way that you encounter the scripture this morning. Uh, for instance, I came from a home that was very structured, and I'm thankful to both my parents and to God for the structure that I had. It was a good home to grow up in, and there was very clear guidelines uh, almost all the time about what was expected and, and what we were gonna do as a family and, and when we should be home and, and what we were allowed to go out and do, and all of these lines of communication were fairly well established. And so, as a young uh, person, I remember thinking how I would use my freedom once I had obtained it. Anybody, anybody can relate to this? That you dwelt as a kid on what I will do when I'm the one making the rules. How I'll spend my money when I'm making, you know, all that, all that money. You know, as a kid, you think mom and dad make all that money. I remember one time over here and my parents talking about paying some bills and they had $1,000 in the bank account and I was like, we are rich. Guys, I was telling my brothers, we are rich, right? Thinking, what will I do when I have all that power? I remember thinking things like this. 
I will just go to the grocery store anytime I want and buy some M&Ms, you know, anytime I want because I will be in control. And so there's some things you think about. Now, maybe if you came from a home that wasn't as structured, you may have thought of some different things. In fact, you may have thought, uh, what will I do someday when I am in control? Uh, What I am going to do is I'm going to make sure that everybody uh, sticks to the plan and follows the rules and everybody is going to be there on time because I hate that nobody ever asks what I'm doing or cares about what's going on. And so I'm going to make sure that in our home that everybody, uh, you know, sticks to the plan. Uh, That might be, you know, your version or your vision of what growing up and being in control would be like. And it's tempting for us to think about these two things as opposites. And so we're going to go ahead and just kind of think that way for a few minutes that there is, to some extent, these are opposites. One of them says, you know, I will just use my freedom to do whatever I want, and that'll be wonderful. The other one says, I will use my freedom or my newfound power to control and to show everyone else what to do because that'll be for their benefit. That'll be a better home. And so those are, to some extent, opposites. And to some extent, in the book of Galatians, those reflect some of the patterns in the two different ethnicities that Paul's writing to. He's writing to Jews and to Gentiles in a church in which there was much Jewish influence, but in a Gentile community or in Gentile communities. And so you'll see in this letter, to some extent, that there are different mindsets about how to use freedom. And what we're going to see as we move through the text together this morning is that they're not quite as far apart as they seem at first, but both of them are actually very close together on a scale at which Christ is the one who is all the way on the other end. So I hope you're ready. Uh, This is one of Paul's strongest letters, and maybe someday we'll take a whole series and work all the way through it. But he's very abrupt, he's very curt with them, he's very forward with the Galatians because of the importance of this message, and we're going to jump right in to chapter 5, which Chris read for us in verse 1. So, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, we're going to encounter four paragraphs. Okay, there's four paragraphs. Now, the paragraphs aren't easy to see in the Greek text always because they just wrote continuous letters. They didn't use punctuation, they didn't use spaces. The papyrus, you know, that they were writing on and the the vellum that they would write on later was very expensive and very rare, and so they used as much of the page as they could. And so there could be some uh, ambiguity as to where the exact paragraphs start and end, but it's important for you to understand there's essentially four paragraphs. There's four movements of thought in the verses we're looking at today, and the first one is just one verse. This is a verse by itself and a paragraph by itself. And Paul uh, says this to the Galatians, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Uh, We would say, what was the word everyone used in the 90s? Duh, right? Like, for freedom, we're free. And so the kid who grows up in the home saying, someday, you know, when I have a he says, well, what am I going to use my freedom for? Well, to be free, of course, you know, like to do what I want for freedom, we've been set free. Uh, And if you're filling in on your bulletin here and you're starting to fill in the blanks, uh, that would be a good idea. You might want to go ahead and just mark off right there that verse 1 is its own paragraph. So this is its paragraph. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, to the church, he writes. You know, don't give it up. Stand in this freedom. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, a week ago, we had mentioned in our sermon about rest and about rest in Jesus that when he calls us to come to him and he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that the, the yoke that they're picturing is a yoke that you would use on animals as they worked the ground, and so that was their burden to bear. It was for the animal, it was their burden to bear. They would put this yoke on the animal, and the yoke would pull it forward, 
And of course, they've got the blade in the ground, and so there is resistance to it. And Paul here is saying to the churches in Galatia, using the same imagery, uh, don't submit again to that kind of yoke, the kind of yoke that will chain you down and that will make you a slave to something so that you can't move forward freely with Christ. And I want you, if you're taking notes, to maybe jot this down as well and think about this, that the idea of freedom, the idea of freedom is only meaningful in relation to something else. Freedom means almost nothing when the word stands by itself because like we've already illustrated with the two homes, you can use it to mean almost whatever you want. The question is freedom from what? Freedom for what? Freedom in what? And so whenever you start to understand what the thing is that we're gaining freedom from or what we're gaining freedom for, it'll give you a much richer and more robust idea of what the gift is that God would like to give to you. And so Paul makes it clear here that he's talking at first, at least, about freedom from a yoke of slavery, something that would bind you and hold you in place and prevent you from moving forward. And so we want to ask, what does Paul mean? by yoke of slavery. What kind of ideas, of concepts, of worldviews, of habits, of sins, of perspectives does Paul have in mind when he says a yoke of slavery? What is he trying to describe to the Galatian church? And so we're going to move into paragraph two. And in paragraph two and paragraph four, we'll find two different yokes of slavery. Two different things that Paul is urging the churches to be freed from. Paragraph 3 is an interesting aside, and we'll cover it when we get to it. So for right now, let's go to verse 2, and this is the beginning of the second paragraph. The first paragraph says, stand in your freedom and, and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Here's the first yoke, the first slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. And so, the first thing that Paul calls a yoke of slavery is what we know of as legalism. And let's put a, a couple, some feet on this word legalism so that it can go with us today. Uh, first of all, when we say legalism, that's appropriate because the specific thing Paul is talking about in the text, circumcision was an aspect of the law of Moses, and he says that by keeping that or by putting your trust in it, what he really means is that if you capitulate and you give over your faith to something more than Jesus, you think that Jesus isn't all sufficient, and so I need something plus Jesus to be confident of what God's doing in my life. If you capitulate and you give back over to the old law, to the legalism of something other than Christ, then you're severed from Christ. And I, and I think that you would understand, uh, most of you, that this particular kind of legalism might not correspond directly with what we're dealing with in the church in the modern era when we use the word legalism. And so there's probably not very many of you who are tempted to go back 
to the law of Moses legalism and have that kind of feet on this word and go back to circumcision, animal sacrifice, temple worship, uh, a priesthood that's your only way to get to God and all of those uh, kind of items, it's probably not the legalism that you're worried about today. And so we have to understand that there could be some legal things or a legalism that exists now, a perspective. And as we move forward here, we're going to ask the question, so what does it look like now? But what Paul means, first of all, by the yoke is legalism. And here's a very simple definition. Now, you can write this down as well. Uh, This is a very simple definition of what is meant by legalism. God loves me for what I do. God loves me because I produce something for him. I produce righteousness for him. I produce uh, good sermons for him, so he loves me. Or I produce converts to Christ, so he loves me. Or I produce righteous teachings in the home, so he loves me. Or uh, maybe it's not just a, a production, but it's, we think of it as a contract with God, a wage that he owes us. I go to church, and I do it the right way. I worship by the right model. I follow the right you know, plans and patterns. And so what God owes me is salvation. Or the contract is that then because I do it the right way, then what he pays out is justification or salvation or holiness or righteousness or whatever it may be. But the concept, the simple idea, is that God loves me, that his response to me is based on what I do. Let's look at a quote that's from a man who lived in the 1700s and the 1800s as he thought through this idea of God loving us because of what we do. This comes from John Colehoun, Uh, He was a Scottish uh, preacher. He lived right, actually right before uh, Thomas and Alexander Campbell came over to the United States and started preaching and teaching a very simple gospel-based movement uh, that was originally known as Disciples and is the roots of what we think of as the American Restoration Movement where the churches of Christ come from. They probably knew this man. Uh, he would have lived at the same time as Thomas Alexander. And they probably, from Scotland's not a great big place. Uh, you know, there's not that many preachers in Scotland, even in the 1700s. They probably had crossed paths. And so this is the way that he gets at legalism. He says, when a man is driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath, you see how he's pitting two ideas against each other? By the dread of wrath revealed in the law and not drawn to them, by the belief of his love revealed in the gospel. So the first one, you know, wrath and love. The second clause is when he fears God because of his power and justice and not because of his goodness. So when these things are out of balance, he continues, when he regards God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, and when he contemplates God rather as terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy. And we should all be able to understand that you need some of both of these. Then he shews, look at this is from the 1700s, right? He shews, that means he shows, that he's under the dominion, the control, the power, uh, the chains, the authority of, that he's submitting to the dominion of at least under the prevalence of a legal spirit. And so this is the way that he defines the idea of a legal spirit, legalism. Uh, this could look like so many things today. 
This could look like what happens when a structured home or a structured church simply takes things too far and starts to value people by how well they keep the structure instead of the fact that they are people. The question that we should ask next is, what is Paul's answer to the specific legal problem of going back to the law in Galatia? And then hopefully from that we can uh, move forward and, and take some shots at what would be an answer for us today when we encounter this kind of slavery. So in verses 5 and 6, at the end of the second paragraph, Paul says these things, great freeing statements of the gospel. For through the Spirit and by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And I want us to slow down for a moment and for you to digest these two verses. They have gospel truth in them. They will nourish your soul. Uh, Paul will repeat some of these themes throughout the rest of the letter now that he's introduced them, even though we won't be able to read all of those uh, reflections today. In fact, in chapter 6, Paul will come back to this idea that circumcision and uncircumcision really don't count at all. And in chapter 6, he'll say the only thing that counts is a new creation. For right now, though, Paul's answer to legalism has these components in it. First of all, he says that it will only happen through the Spirit. And we need to define for a moment the way that Paul uses the categories of spirit and flesh. Because in a moment here, he's going to turn to flesh. What does Paul mean when he says spirit and flesh? Well, basically by spirit, he means the realm in which God's ways are honored, the place in which it isn't just through God owes me something, but there is a relationship and a love of God. And flesh is going to be the place where the sinful nature is still in control. He doesn't just mean things that are physical, but he means the things about us that are linked to the physical world, that love the physical world more than we love God and his truths. And so he has these categories of spirit and flesh. And first of all, he says that the answer will only happen through the spirit. And it'll only happen by faith. It'll only happen by faith that we ourselves can await the hope of our righteousness. What is the hope of our righteousness? Well, in a few words, it's what will happen at the last day whenever God grants us the hope of our Christian faith. And he says, you are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And he grants you the hope of your faith, the resurrection, like Jesus' own resurrection, where he makes you new and incorruptible. And where the things of unrighteousness or the things of sin that have plagued you, the things that have held you back and been like a yoke of slavery to you, don't have a hold on you anymore. And he says, through the Spirit and by faith, we await this future hope. But he's not done. He says, this only happens by faith working through love. And there's some irony here probably for the Jews in Galatia who read these words. Because Paul doesn't give up on the idea of working. He doesn't release the idea of Christians having meaningful service. No, instead, he spiritualizes the principle. 
And he says instead of working for the flesh, and even in fleshly ways in the law of Moses, we're going to work in a spiritual way, which is a work through love. And in just a few verses, he'll expand on this some more. We work through love, as James will say in his very different epistle in the New Testament. He says that, that we need a faith that works because faith without works is dead. Not that a person without works is dead, but that faith that doesn't lead to any action isn't real faith at all, especially if it isn't done in love. So with that, let's move into the third paragraph. Now, Paul, in this paragraph, moves into a personal aside for a moment. We get to hear a little bit of the conversation of what was going on in Galatia. We get to hear it like it's from one end of the telephone. You don't get to see all of the questions, but you get to see Paul's response. And embedded in this paragraph is an important gospel concept. Let's read it. He says in verse 7, You Galatians were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, it's not God who's given you this idea to change up or to switch up uh, the sufficiency for your salvation. It's come from somewhere else. And then he alludes to Jesus' teaching that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, a little bit of this teaching is going to move all through the church and corrupt the teaching of the churches in Galatia. Uh, he continues, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. In other words, Paul says, I've got confidence you're going to make the right decision by the end of reading this letter. I've got the confidence you're going to choose freedom in Christ instead of slavery to this old law. And whoever's been teaching you this, he's going to have to deal with the consequences. And this right here in verse 11 is where you get to see part of what they might have been accusing Paul of. Because he says, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In other words, someone in Galatia must have been claiming that Paul was preaching circumcision or that if he had had time to stay with us longer and teach us the rest of the scriptures, that eventually he would have come around to circumcision and he would have taught us to keep all the law of Moses. This is a guess that we have to make about the situation because all we get is this one-sided reflection in Paul's letter. Whatever it may have been, Paul moves on to this point. He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. If I were still preaching circumcision as sufficient for salvation, the cross is no longer offensive. Why is the cross offensive? The cross is offensive because it is the only gospel in the history of the world that comes to you with a message that will defeat both legalism and the second problem Paul's about to refer to. It's the only good news in the history of the world in which somebody dies for you and is willing to extend to you without cost his own reputation, his own righteousness. And if you're going to go back and say, I will build my reputation and my righteousness on keeping a right pattern, on following all the rules, on doing things legalistically, on believing that God will reward me because of what I do, if you're going to slip back into that mindset, the cross isn't offensive anymore. It's not free anymore. It isn't a gift anymore. And then Paul says, I wish... No, oh, this is one of Paul's frustrated moments. He says, I wish that those who unsettle you like this would go all the way and emasculate themselves. 
And I've chosen today not to comment any more on that scripture. Amen, church. Let's keep moving. As we get into paragraph four and wrap up this section of Paul's text, we're going to encounter the second problem. So he's now dealt with, to some extent, the legalism in Galatia. But as we read verses 13 through 15, we'll uncover a second yoke that maybe is really the same yoke. Paul continues, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And again, I want us to slow down and to take in these words. I've already described for you that Paul is putting two different ideas against each other. He's pitting spirit and flesh against each other. And so now, having dealt some with this false spirit, this false attempt at getting into the spiritual realm by doing it through fleshly means, he's going to deal with a completely different idea. People who say, let's not worry about the spiritual realm at all. If we can't get into the spiritual realm through fleshly means by following rules, let's just live how we want. Let's just indulge the flesh. When Paul uses the word opportunity, it's a word that would have struck the Gentile readers in Galatia for its metaphorical impact. It's an idiom in Greek, and the word originally meant a base of operations for the military. A base of operations for the military. In other words, Paul is using this colorful language to say, don't uh, use your freedom as a launching pad, as, a, as the place from which you send out an assault uh, for the flesh. Don't use it as a platform on which to establish just simply doing what you want. Don't use it as a base of operations for your own selfish ways, but through love learn to serve one another. And then he quotes Jesus and the Old Testament by saying the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. At this point, I want to share a quote from Scott McKnight with you. He's a commentator on Galatians, and he gives some insight into the condition of these churches. You've seen the two problems now. One household that thinks rules are the way to freedom, and another household, this Gentile pagan concept that says, let's just forget about spiritual transformation and just live as we are. And Scott McKnight wrote this. We should think, when we think of the churches in Galatia, of rivalries rivalries of separate house churches not speaking with one another anybody in here ever seen the aftermath of a church split the devastation that reigns whenever family members end up in different congregations and will no longer speak to each other it happened in the church i grew up in and to this day there's a second generation of people who have no desire to reunite uh, around their common love of jesus because something that their fathers had done and words that were shared and so there's separate churches in my hometown today not speaking with one another we should think in Galatia of spiritual pride on the part of those who've been circumcised. They're just a cut above the rest. And a slogan after slogan being bandied about in the communities about who's more righteous. And the picture we draw is sad, he says. Sad because they had adopted the pattern of letting their freedom become a launching pad for indulging the flesh. What else does Paul mean by a yoke of slavery? Besides legalism, he also means this, a libertarianism 
that you could also call by these other words. And I've put these other words here for you today because as you read further, as you read in your study Bible or your commentary, you're going to come across them. Antinomianism just means you're against all laws, like you're against there being rules. It's not very different maybe than anarchy, except for anarchy means against rulers, and antinomianism means even against rules. And it just creates chaos in societies and homes when you have this antinomianism perspective on life. Or you could say this. This is the way that maybe it's most often put today. Complete moral autonomy. I just want to do what I want to do. And to sum it up and put it in just a few words, we would put it this way. Libertarianism is when we think that God loves whatever I do. We think that the gospel means that whatever God has done in Jesus has no impact and no expectation at all on who I am from now on. And so whereas legalism makes this mistake that God loves me for what I do, libertarianism makes maybe an opposite mistake. God loves me regardless of what I do. And Paul will address some of these ideas in other books. In Romans 6, he addresses this idea of freedom and the imbalance in it. He said, now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. In other words, God does care what you do, but you can't lose the freedom of the gift that leads to what you do. And remember, freedom means nothing if it doesn't have an anchor of freedom from what or freedom for what. And in this passage, Paul says, you've been set free from sin, but free for God, not free for complete moral autonomy. Also in Corinthians, as he's arguing back and forth with them about their imbalanced perspectives on freedom, he'll say, yes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. True, all things are lawful for me, but I don't want to be dominated or controlled by anything. And later in the book, he'll say the same things. Not all things are helpful and not all things build up. In other words, you can give up your slavery to one area and find yourself in an entirely different kind of slavery and still not experiencing the full freedom of the cross. Brothers and sisters, what are we to do about these problems? What are we to do about them? The way the passage ends, the end of paragraph four is this. Paul says, if you continue, if you insist on biting and devouring one another, if everybody in these communities keeps taking a chunk out of the other, an accusation here, a frustration that's leveled in anger there, eventually, you better be careful, watch out, that you're not consumed by one another. You will gobble each other up if you see, still live from these two perspectives. And so the answer to libertarianism, just like legalism, is going to be the very same promises of Scripture, that through the Spirit and by faith we await the hope of righteousness, that circumcision and uncircumcision don't actually count for anything but only faith working through love, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And we realize today that for you and me, the problem with either of these, with legalism on the one hand or libertarianism on the other, is that they are both essentially about me. 
Both of these perspectives have shipwrecked the freedom of faith by thinking too much about myself and what I will do when I am put in control. The only answer that addresses both of these problems that are really in the end the same problem, just two poles on a problem of selfishness and over outsized ego and pride is that the gospel is the one message in all of creation that frees me from me and centers all value on Christ. When he says serve one another through love, that can only happen in the lens of the gospel of Jesus who says It doesn't matter which house you came from. I will give you a righteousness that is so good and so pure and a hope of righteousness that is so good and so pure that it will transform what you do. You'll be amazed by the results that you can actually live by faith through the Spirit instead of in the yoke of slavery. And this still answers today in our culture, both churches that get too legalistic and those that get too liberal. It answers homes that get too legalistic and those that get too liberal. It answers for individuals, for you and me, when we find ourselves out of balance, feeling like we're not good enough because we haven't produced enough, or when we feel too good about ourselves because we think God just wants me to be happy. And the cross is offensive to both, but liberating in a powerful way. And if you need to encounter the cross of Jesus today, we want to share the hope with you. Our shepherds will be waiting to receive you at the front and in the back. They'd be happy to baptize you into Christ this morning or pray with you about whatever yoke you've been carrying. We hope that you enjoy your freedom on the fourth, but also that you appreciate and enjoy and digest and are nourished by the great freedom of the cross of Christ. Come and share whatever we can help you with as we stand and sing this song of invitation.